Say ah. Examining the tongue can tell a doctor a lot about our health, but it reveals so much more than just a sore throat. That's today on the podcast. Hey, this is Marisa from the Tower Hill production team. Thank you so much for listening into our Tower Hill podcast. Wherever or whenever you're listening, we hope this podcast blesses you. And we hope that you feel free to share it with someone that you know so they can feel blessed too. We are continuing our sermon series, A Screen Door on a Submarine, where we look at how faith without action can be useless like a screen door underwater. It's not doing much. Today, Pastor Julie explores the teaching of James and how we can be quick to listen and slow to speak. So let's quickly check it out right now. Things that don't make sense. Things like being a Christian who talks a good talk, but does not walk the walk. Last week, Pastor Jason reminded us of one of those nonsensical things that we do, listening to the Word, but not doing what it says. And he reminded us that James says, do not just be hearers of the Word, but be doers also. He challenged us to do the listening prayer, being quiet and still for three minutes. Did any of you remember to try it last week? Did you set your egg timer? Good, good, good. Well, today we're going to look at the next section of the book of James, chapter 3, where James tries to get his listeners to understand that one of the ways that we can become doers of the word is to think carefully about what we say to one another and how we say it. Our words affect others. I learned this week that almost one half of the verses of the entire letter of James are about speech, about our words. So he thought this was pretty important. Well, every day we speak thousands of words. Sometimes we choose them carefully. Sometimes we blurt them out. Some words we speak quietly. Some words we shout. Some words we speak to help and encourage. And some words we use to hurt and to retaliate. James wants us to think about how does genuine faith in Jesus Christ show itself in how we speak? Well, back in August when Pastor Jason let me know that this was going to be my scripture and topic for the week, my heart sunk. I thought, okay, God, you really have a sense of humor. Of all the possible topics to preach about, this is, hands down, the hardest for me. As the first of five children, I was an early talker and an early reader. I think this is common among firstborns. Parents are so excited to teach their baby everything and, you know, to set them on the path to Harvard, you know, that they tend to go overboard and, you know, to give them the best start in life. 
And I remember three by five cards labeling all kinds of things in the house, right? Door, window, table, chair. Tell me I'm not the only child who had this growing up, no? Okay. Um, And I remember having books read to me every day and again at bedtime. I remember weekly trips to the library, remember making up silly songs, words, words, words. And my parents both made a living using their words, persuasively, effectively, compassionately. My mother was an excellent student of languages, both French and Latin, and she taught U.S. history before she became a newspaper reporter and then later a public relations um, agency executive. She's now a mediator and a communications professor at a major university, still using her words. My dad had a long and successful career in sales. He was also a soccer coach and a lay leader in our Episcopal church, the senior warden of the vestry, kind of like the clerk of session. And then at age 55, he decided to finish seminary, which he had started in his 20s, was ordained and became a pastor and a chaplain. Then there's my sister's influence. She was born just a year after me and also has an incredible way with words. She got an almost perfect verbal score on her SAT by learning thousands of vocabulary words in those practice books. They're about this thick. And just by being a voracious reader. She has worked as an actor and now as an Episcopal priest and has won all kinds of word-related awards on her way to that path, both in high school and college and seminary. She wins in Scrabble every single time. Just count on it. And she does words with friends online, and I won't be your friend because it's just too depressing. So there was not a lot of quiet time in my house growing up in our early years, and that was before three boys joined our family. We would talk and talk and, like I said, read stories and write stories and songs. And then in elementary school, my sister and I would direct shows with our friends and invite the neighborhood to come. We had a stage crew, which we usually put my brothers on. We had choreographers and tickets and ushers and even a concession stand. And then there were times when we would fight like cats and dogs. We would argue and debate and spar, no matter what the topic was. Yes, it was. No, it isn't. Yes, sir. You've probably heard the likes. We both wanted to get the last word. Well, I can tell you that I am grateful for my parents' example and my sister's influence and the tools that they have given me. But I can also tell you that having parents who were great with words and teachers had its own dark side. My parents disciplined us with strong words, and often tried to use humor, especially dad. He didn't usually yell or name call, but he had his own creative way of making his point and getting us to stop our verbal sparring with a little shame. And the line that I remember is particularly stinging, especially when we would talk back. He'd say, Julie, you missed another chance to keep your mouth shut. Dad. Sometimes he would call it an opportunity. Oops, you did it again. You just missed another opportunity to be quiet. 
So for years, I did not have positive associations with being quiet. I associated it with punishment. It meant a time when I was not free to say what I wanted to say. I was being shut down. And it wasn't until my late teens and early 20s that I learned the peace that can come from time spent in silence and to welcome quiet time with God as a good thing, as a restorative thing. So, all that is to say, if I had read the third chapter of James before I had responded to the call to ministry, I probably wouldn't be here today. Maybe I had read it but just forgot. As an off-the-charts extrovert, I tend to process out loud. As you may know, extroverts know what they think when they hear themselves say it. And this can be really dangerous. Too often, my tongue starts moving before my brain is engaged. I respond too quickly without listening carefully enough. I know how often I get into trouble with my tongue. So, James doesn't mince words. He gets right at it. And he starts by reminding his readers that those who teach are held to a higher standard. They will be judged more harshly than others. Oh, great. And he says, if you teach, understand what you are getting yourself into. And he then goes on to explain how important it is for believers to tame their tongues. So I'm going to begin reading James chapter 3 at the third verse. I invite you to follow along in the portion that's printed in your bulletin. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made at the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be so. Does a spring pour forth the same opening, from the same opening both fresh and salt water? 
Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. This is the word of the Lord. James reminds us of the power of our words and that our words matter more than we can possibly imagine. So we need to tame our tongues and gives us three vivid metaphors to explain why. First, the bit in the mouth of the horse, the rudder of the large ship, and the forest fire, the spark of the forest fire. Just a few words, a spark, can cause years of heartache, can ruin a reputation, can damage a relationship. An ill-timed, unkind word can spoil the most tender of moments. It can embarrass and humiliate and shame. And once that word is spoken, even if from a distance, it is wide-ranging and damaging, and there's no taking it back. Maybe if you grew up in church or youth group, you remember the analogy of the toothpaste that you can't put back in the tube. You remember that? It's like the classic children's message, right? Can't put it back in. He tries to remind us that the tongue is a small part of the body, yet it can do powerful things. And in this day and age, I think I would add our thumbs and our fingers. You know what I mean? It is all too easy to type a careless, hurtful word in a text or a tweet or an email behind a screen that we would never say in person. And if you're anything like me, I imagine at the end of the day when you lay your head on your pillow at night, you may feel shame and regret, not so much because of what you did, but more because of what you said. And maybe you wish you could take some of it back. Well, James uses some powerful language about the tongue. It's, it's a little hard to hear. He calls our, says our tongues boast. They're a world of righteousness. The tongue can stain the whole body and is set on fire by hell. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. Yikes. I think what he's trying to tell us that demonic power does not look like we think it does. It's not about spinning heads and crazy voices. It's about everyday speech that kills and wounds and leaves scars. Our tongues can quite literally make our lives hell on earth. And then James ends this section describing the paradox of how we use our tongues. We can use them for good and for bad, to bless and to curse. We bless God and we curse God's children made in God's image. With our tongues, we can encourage our children and comfort our friends, defend the truth, confess our faith, confess our sins. And with our tongues, we can gossip and destroy and break promises. He gives us some more metaphors in case we didn't get it with the first three. A spring and a fig tree. 
And he reminds us that nature is consistent. That's what God, creation does, what God made it to do. We don't. We sing hymns of praise and worship on Sunday and wreak havoc with our tongues Monday through Saturday with our words. I bet we can all think of things that we have said that have caused pain to others. That little white lie, that harsh word you spoke to your spouse or your kids, that gossip we engaged in about a teacher or a neighbor or a pastor. The tongue only reveals what is at its source. And James laments. He says, this ought not be so. So as followers of Christ, I hope we would join James in that lament. It ought not be so. Now, I am not here to beat us up or shame us, and James isn't either. Now, notice he doesn't say, you stupid, ignorant people, just keep your mouth shut. (laughs) He doesn't say what I am so guilty of saying to my children, what is wrong with you? None of you say that to your kids? Okay. (laughs) He doesn't say, you missed another chance to keep your mouth shut. No. He calls them brothers. Three times he calls them brothers. In a newer translation, he simply says, my friends. He explains to them that as followers of Jesus, we should tame our tongues, but we can't. And the reason we can't is that we can't do it on our own. Our hearts will always tend toward the selfish and the sinful. And I love that quote from Augustine who said, O Lord, command what you will, but give what you command. And what he means is this. You call us to do this, Lord, and yet we can't do it alone without your enabling power, without your Holy Spirit. On my office wall, I have a framed print of the quote from Augustine, church father from the fourth century, And he sums up this view of the human condition. He said, You have made us for yourselves, Almighty God, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. I'll read that again. You have made us for yourselves, Almighty God, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. So what do we do with all of this? We have dangerous tongues, and our natures are sinful. What an encouraging message for a Sunday morning, Pastor Julie. Thank you very much. Let's not cut to that conclusion so quickly. Think about for a minute when you go to the doctor. What is the first thing your doctor asks you to do when you go in for an exam? Say, ah, ah, right? The doctor is looking at our tongue as an indicator of our health of our whole body. It's a telling. It provides all kinds of information. And in the same way, 
that which is produced by our tongue, our words, can show the health of our spiritual bodies. If we want our speech to change, we have to recognize that the main problem is not our speech. It's our hearts that are the problem. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus speaks of words like this. One of the ones I love, Matthew 12, 34, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. It's another good one from Proverbs. Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. We have probably all had those moments where we said something and went, oh my goodness, I can't believe I said that. I stuck my foot in my mouth again. When we do that, instead of beating ourselves up, we need to step back and take a look at our hearts and figure out what is going on here. I don't just mean listen to what our hearts are saying, because if we do that, chances are we'll get a skewed message. Because our hearts can deceive us. We say, oh, you deserve better, and that person shouldn't have said that, and, um, you know, don't pay any attention to them. But those are not reliable sources. We need to turn to God as David did in that famous recorded prayer, Psalm 51, after David is caught in an affair with Bathsheba. He says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew within me a right spirit. That's what God invites us to do. To turn to God and acknowledge, I can't do this on my own. I need your strength. I need your power. Notice David doesn't say, I'm going to clean up my heart, O God. You just watch. You just wait and see. Here I go. I mean it this time. No. He says, create in me a clean heart. You do it to me. We can meditate on scriptures that can strengthen our resolve to speak with grace. We can assume responsibility for every word we speak. And we can make amends for the ways that we have offended others. If you are not sure if you've offended others with your words, ask someone who you can trust. I did this recently, and I didn't like the answer, but I knew it was the right answer. I'd said something I shouldn't have, and I later checked with a friend who was present and asked her if I was out of line. And she said, yep, you were. You need to take care of that and apologize. That's not what I wanted to hear. But she was right. I was out of line. And it hurt to hear that. But it led me to arrange a meeting with a person that I had offended and to apologize and to ask for forgiveness. And it had a beautiful grace-filled ending. But how much easier would have been just to ignore the damage I had done or to think, it wasn't my fault? It's so tempting to choose the easy way. 
I want to close with this story. A man named James Hamilton wrote a paperback devotional book called Directions in the 1970s. And in it, he tells a story about a man who worked in an ice house. As you probably know, before refrigerators, people used ice houses to preserve their food and to keep the ice blocks cold. So ice houses had, had thick walls, no windows, tightly fitted door. And in the winter, when streams and lakes were frozen, men would cut large blocks of ice from the frozen waters, haul them to the ice house, ice house and then cover them with sawdust. And often these blocks would last well into the summer. Well, there's one man that was working at Ice House, and he lost his valuable watch while working during his shift. And he searched and searched diligently for it all throughout the ice, and he's trying to clear the sawdust away, and he's getting frantic, and he he can't do it. His fellow workers come in, and they're trying to help him, and finally they just said, let's stop for lunch. So they took a break and stepped outside the Ice House, and a little boy who heard about this, I don't know if it was one of the worker's sons, slipped into the ice house during the lunch hour, and he soon walks out with the watch a couple minutes later. The men couldn't believe it. He said, how'd you find that watch? The little boy said, it was easy. I closed the door, and I lay down in the sawdust, and I kept very still. And soon I heard the watch ticking. And I found it. We can search and search and try and try to clean up our speech, to find ways to make our speech better and tame our tongues. But it's not likely to improve until we do a few things. Acknowledge that we can't do it on our own. Stop listening to the other voices that can be unreliable. In other words, clear the sawdust away. Get still and quiet enough to hear God speaking to us. Ask God to create a clean heart in you and do whatever you sense God nudging you to do to make amends. And then repeat that process over and over and over. Because trying to be a follower of Christ without taming our tongue, like faith without works, like being hearers and not doers of the word, makes no sense. Amen. Amen.